Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. I'm a Virgo, and I'm a very typical Virgo in certain ways. Mainly, I love being well-organized. I think that's a real Virgo thing. So that put me at a slight advantage when I was caring for my mother. But as every caregiver knows, it's almost impossible to stay organized when you're managing your own life and the life of your loved one, which is why I really wished I'd known about the book written by today's guests when I was caring for my mom. I'm joined today by Kay Bransford. She's the author of Memory Bank, the workbook for organizing life. It's the centerpiece of an award-winning system Kay developed after caring for her two parents who had dementia. But I'll let her tell you that story and what Memory Bank is all about. Kay Bransford, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Um, Before we get into why you wrote the book, can you tell us a little bit about your background and where you live and where you grew up? Um, Well, I um, grew up as an Army brat, so we moved around a lot. But after college, I ended up staying mostly in the D.C. area and working in marketing and business development roles, Um, and I was the only one that actually lived near mom and dad, so I was raising my kids and spending time with my parents, Um, so I've been here now for about 25 years. Wow, and how many siblings do you have? I have, there's four of us, so I have three siblings, two brothers and an older sister. Okay, and you're the only one that lives in the D.C. area? Yes. So how did you learn that your parents were having memory problems, and, and, and how did you react to that? So I guess we noticed, my husband and I would have my parents over or go have dinner with them, um, mm-hmm. with our two kids. Mm-hmm. So we saw my parents quite a bit. So we started noticing memory issues. Gosh, I want to say I brought it up with my siblings back in 2004 or mm-hmm. 2005. Mm-hmm. So I started to notice my mom having more issues, just not remembering things. But it wasn't really remarkable till about 2010. She would literally repeat the same thing three times in a row within 10 minutes. So we recognized, you know, something was really going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it, oddly, my, my siblings actually thought I didn't recognize the memory as much as my dad, but they recognized his personality had dimmed. He just wasn't the same fun-loving guy he was. So that's when we really started to notice my dad was having issues when his personality changed. So it was at different times that you noticed this in them? Was it later for your dad or was it around the same time? You know, it was, I noticed it first with my mom and then she, but she kept (laughs) saying something's wrong with your dad's memory. Uh (laughs) Um, So I want to say I noticed it more with my mom first uh-huh. And then they kind of ended up in progressive, like a moderate stage of dementia, almost simultaneously, where it just, it was so obvious that both of them couldn't manage together anymore. Uh-huh. That must have been kind of scary, both at once. Yeah, I mean, it was, but it was almost, it, in some ways, it was a relief to finally have a diagnosis. It took us, 
you know, we've been seeing stuff, and anyone that's taken on the caregiver journey knows it can be really hard to even get a diagnosis. Absolutely. So some of those things, it was a very long journey in some ways, and it was a relief almost when the diagnosis finally came. When you say it was a long journey, do you mean because it took so long to get diagnosed and you went through all the processes? Yeah, well, it, I mean, I guess it wasn't, I was actually going to doctor's appointments with my parents and saying, hey, I'm noticing this. Mm-hmm. And my mom would bring up things and she would discount everything that I would share with the doctor. It was like she didn't want the doctor to know. Mm-hmm. So my mom probably could have been diagnosed much earlier, but she, I don't know that she wanted to get a diagnosis. Huh. Yeah. So it felt like things were really happening for several years where we were just kind of ignoring issues and she didn't want to talk about it. Uh Uh-huh. So you were taking your parents to their medical appointments. When did you start doing that? That's a lot of work. Yeah, it was a lot of work, but it was interesting. I mean, I think they probably recognized that something was wrong. You know, they they couldn't be each other's advocate, really. Mm -hmm. So it was my mom ended up having a stroke. Um, Mm -hmm. She had a minor stroke. It left no physical, um, you know, kind of disabilities. Mm Mm-hmm. But I had to take her to the neurologist because she didn't trust my dad to take her to the neurologist. Oh, huh. So there were some weird things that were going on. (laughs) Well, she didn't trust that he would want to take her or that he would be uh, open to being an advocate once they were there. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I I think there's both. She Uh wasn't sure he would be able to get her to the doctor. I see. Um, So I wonder if he just wasn't showing up. Like, there were some things that came out later that we didn't know were going on at the time, but she wanted me to drive her there. She didn't want my dad to drive her there. And I think some of it, she posed it to me more as like, this was more of a girl thing. Yeah. When it wasn't really, it was just, can you take me to the doctor? I have this follow-up appointment. I think your dad's busy. What, 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 was your dad still working? Were your parents retired? Yeah, no, they were both actually still pretty active. My mom was a life master in bridge, so she actually was running duplicate bridge games. And she had Wait, that's business. really fascinating. Wait, tell me about your mom's... What was she doing? <laughs> so my mom was um, teaching people how to play bridge. So for probably 30 years... She'd been doing classes at local community centers and in church basements, uh-huh. and she would teach people how to play bridge, and then she would hold weekly bridge game, games where they would come in, and it was kind of a, um, there's actually a, a whole bridge association, and you, mm-hmm. winners get points awarded, and if you get so many points, you become, you eventually become a life master. I see. And so my mom was a very good bridge player. Did she teach you? She tried to teach us um, with four kids. She could sit us around the table, and um, for years she tried to teach us, but we never actually learned. We uh-huh. ended up playing all kinds of other games. Uh-huh. So I'm sad that I never had a chance to learn how to play bridge. Yeah. Where are you in the birth order? I am the baby of the family. Oh, boy. So I'm the youngest. Okay. And so mom was a bridge master, and dad was in the Army, you said? Yes, he was a career military okay. um, veteran, and when he retired, though, he actually went and worked for other for-profit companies for several years, and when all of these things started happening, he was doing consulting work, so he still was pretty active. He actually w- had two different times he went to Iran to mm-hmm. help hmm. rebuild, mm-hmm. 
Wow. So he was he was still doing a lot of stuff when we were noticing, you know, the initial kind of things going on with mom and dad. Uh-huh. Did he resist the idea that he was, you know, losing his memory a little bit? my dad was better about us raising issues than my mom was. So mm. he was, but my that was kind of my dad's nature. He would sit and listen, hear what you had to say. But we actually staged two different interventions with my parents where um, all four of us sat down, brought lunch in and said, hey, mom and dad, we think things aren't going so well. Um, we think it's time for you to consider some changes. And they would listen and then they eventually, you know, would just come back and say, you know, thanks for your concern, but we think we're doing okay. Mm-hmm. You're dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did that twice. What was the second go-round like? Um, the second go-round was very much like the first. They didn't, mm. the, the problem was, I mean, they really didn't have any short-term memory. So they never remembered that we had the first appointment. Oh, um, and then we had done this the first time. So it was like deja vu. And how old was your mom when she had the stroke, the mini stroke? 77. But she was really healthy. Both my parents were active. My dad played racquetball. That that was the only, like, medical issue she had. And they're still living, are they? Um, Actually, my dad's not. My dad passed away two years ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. How is your mom doing? She She's living on her own, and it was a really tough transition for her because she and my dad they were really good together. Sure. Um, and when he passed away, it was really difficult for her. We ended up having to move her into a new community because she just wasn't in the right community anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's now in a memory care community. I see. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about your book and how that evolved. Um, it really started, so my parents did all the estate planning. They were very well prepared. Um, insurance planning, financial plan. We knew what they wanted to do, and then when we started to notice issues with mom and dad, and it really started, as I mentioned, I was taking them to the doctor's appointments. Um, I'm also raising two kids, Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden, I needed to go into a doctor's appointment and be a medical advocate for mom and dad, and I really didn't have the information that I needed to do it, so it started out where I was creating a record of their medical history and what pills they were taking. And then from there, it just it started mushrooming into the water got turned off in their house. So I needed to figure out how to pay the water bill mm-hmm. um, and kind of get things back on track. And with all the planning that they had, and even with the durable power of attorney, it just really doesn't give you information. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have the account numbers that I needed. I started finding issues where some banks wouldn't accept a durable power of attorney, mm-hmm. which should, shouldn't happen, but most of us who have been in the caregiver role have run into an issue where the bank says, no, it's more than two years old. I had Fidelity tell me that, and I had another bank tell me it was more than five years old. Huh. So just trying to manage all these different issues, pay bills, manage cash flow, turned into an organizational book that I created just to manage my own sanity mm-hmm. and keep everything in one place. And when my siblings came in to be caregivers and kind of give me a break, I could hand over the book to them mm-hmm. and they had everything they needed in one place. And I would tell some pretty crazy stories because when people don't have a memory, mm-hmm. <laughs> my parents would do some really unusual things. Mm-hmm. And so people kept hearing me talk about, you know, the things happening with mom and dad and this book that I had, they'd see it you know, me carrying it around. And I started to get people to ask for it. Hmm. And I realized that 
there are more than, you know, 50 million, no, I think it's up to 60 million caregivers in the United States alone, and we just don't have the information that we need to always be the best advocate we can. So I kind of looked at what I had built and what people were asking me for in the marketplace and said, you know what, this is really an unmet need, and I wrote a business plan, um, entered a competition, and I won the AARP Foundation Award um, as an older adult-focused innovation for the tool and the system I created to help families. That's fantastic. That's really great. So um, you talk about having choices that you were faced with and setting ground rules that you established with your siblings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so when you asked about my dad, I mean, that he that was one of the biggest issues we faced is we knew, we all had, we were a pretty close family. We ate dinners together growing up. So mm-hmm. we knew a lot of what my parents' wishes were in terms of kind of end-of-life choices. And my dad with moderate Alzheimer's ends up having a cancer um, in mm. his mouth, and we have to make a decision about do we treat our dad for cancer and have him live longer with Alzheimer's? And so that was a really difficult choice for my fam, my siblings and I to really make. Thankfully, during this process, one of my siblings came to town, so we were walking this journey, meeting with all the doctors and able to talk about it so we could report back to our siblings. But that is a really hard choice for anyone to have to make, and I'm thankful that we all knew and had spent enough time with our parents and knew what the choice was that my dad would want to make. He would mm-hmm. not want to be treated for cancer, so we were able to put him in a hospice path. And thankfully, I say this now because it's easier to look back on it, he um, mm-hmm. passed away within four weeks of his diagnosis. Oh, my goodness. So it was you know, pretty quick moving. Um, but, but that was a really tough choice for us to make as siblings. We knew my mom would love to have him around, and that was going to be hard to have him gone, but he was in a lot of pain, so so we could make that choice. But one of the things that we did early on as we were you know, trying to help our parents, especially when they were resisting, is we made a pact and said, we're not going to hurt our parents or make bad choices because we can't agree. Mm-hmm. So we put some rules in place, and one of the rules was that it's majority rules, so mm-hmm. we we would call a vote. There's four of us. You'd think we would have a lot of dead, even votes, <laughs> but we didn't. You know, we did have a lot of three ones, um, and we put in those rules about if our vote would affect us, any of us financially, mm-hmm. it had to be unanimous. Mm-hmm. That's a good we rule. We could disagree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep, it had to be unanimous, but, and mm-hmm. we could say, you can disagree, but let's not be disagreeable. Right. Um, and we also were all married, so we all have uh-huh. spouses, and so we uh-huh. also said, you know, your your spouses can participate in the calls. We invite them to the conversation, but only lineage votes. So only I could vote. My husband could talk to me about it, but we didn't want to add a whole other layer. And um, that is so smart. It sounds like you guys more or less get along. You know, we do. And there's 10 years between us, so oh, uh-huh. it, it is a good span where we didn't have a lot of fighting or... but. I would say it was more difficult in the beginning because my siblings all moved away. Uh-huh. So it's not like I was, we talked to each other regularly or we'd have Christmas and we'd all visit mom and dad, but we didn't really spend time with each other. Yeah. And this whole journey actually changed that for us where we call each other regularly, we visit with each other, we know what's going on in each other's lives now, where we didn't have that before this whole thing started. That's really nice. When you assumed the primary caregiver responsibilities, was it hard for you to not have them nearby? Yeah, and I, I'd i say that it, I 
actually talk to a lot of families about this quite a bit because uh-huh. I tell them the person that's close and nearby is usually the first one to, you know, raise the warning sign mm-hmm. and say, look, something's going on. And I mean, I raised it four to five years before my siblings really recognized mm-hmm. what I was seeing because they just weren't around them as much as I was. So it was very hard. My sister's a lawyer, so she was actually the person that was named in all the estate planning initially as the primary person to make all these choices. And it got to the point where I'm like, look, I'm here, Mm -hmm. and I can't help because the paperwork doesn't, it's not naming me. Mm -hmm. So I'm here, and I'm kind of handcuffed. So it was, it took about a year for us to really make that transition because I'm the baby of the family, and no one really recognized what I was seeing and what I was going through. But the more they started visiting, the quicker they started to turn over the reins and say, yeah, we need to get you more tools. We need to help you. Mm-hmm. And you just tell us what you need us to do. So now they let me take the lead on everything because I'm the one on the ground. And mm-hmm. that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking about this in military terms because you come from a military family. I'm thinking about <laughs> it as boots on the ground and they're back at base um, can you talk a little bit about what you're hearing from other families and what are some of the other stories you've heard? Yeah, and it's interesting because I think the most I hear, I think I get more from the spouse. You know, here's what we're seeing, and I hear it more from the the older sibling that doesn't live near mom and dad. They don't always believe the person that's on the ground. And so usually my conversation is, you know what, you need to get rid of some of that childhood, you know, baggage we kind of carry around where little brother, you don't believe what little brother's saying and really just spend time to understand and assume that what they're telling you is correct. And don't, don't battle with your sibling over what they're trying to do to help mom or dad. Mm -hmm. Um, I hear that more than anything is most people just get uncomfortable with letting one sibling that was normally, you know, was it the black sheep or was it the one that always seemed to get in trouble might Mm -hmm. be the one that's the most caring and around mom and dad. So (laughs) families have to have to change Mm -hmm. um, and understand that we all, you know, we're adults now Mm -hmm. and people change. And so I hear more, more of that the conflict with siblings, turning over reins and trusting that I hear as much just having issues with mom and dad. That's so interesting. I believe it. Because when things like this happen, it brings up all sorts of unresolved issues from childhood, whether we're aware of them or not. And some crazy stuff can happen in there. <laughs> it <going>. can. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it does. I mean, it just does. It, and you can't escape it. Every family's different, but every family's complicated. No matter how grounded your childhood was or your upbringing was, at the end of the day, when the situation changes with your parents, if they go through something, everybody reacts differently. And there are some really yeah. deeply buried issues that get worked out in a new way or manifest in a new way. Well, and plus, you're, you're also getting like, it's almost a new colleague in some way. So I, when you were talking, it just made me think back to at one point we needed to clear a bookshelf. We were downsizing and going through books and I was trying to like power through the books to make sure, you know, my parents didn't hide money in them or (laughs) there was a personal note that was inside before we donated it. So I'm powering through the books, putting them in the bookshelves or putting them in the boxes to have them picked up and taken away. But my sister on the other hand wanted to look through the books. She'd start reading each one and she wanted to talk about it. Oh, my gosh, Dad got this from so-and-so. Isn't this fascinating? 
we just had such different approaches to how we wanted to manage all the stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was so frustrated with her and she was so frustrated with me because I was just like way too type A, like uh-huh. let's get this done. Oh, God, and she was so trying to join the journey and feel and reconnect with mom and dad by going through their stuff. And it was, in some ways, it was funny. We just, we said, you know what? We can't be assigned to the same task because we do not work the same. (laughs) So you need to go in another room and do something else. And it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I think because you were there on the ground for so long and in such close proximity to your parents, it's quite conceivable to me that you would have already processed some of the the emotions that your sibling was processing. I know I was in I was in the same position. And I, at a certain point, I said to my sisters, all right, I've got this lined up, this lined up, this lined up. Just tell me what you want. All right, we're going room to room to room. And I was very almost a little bit too cold about it. But at that point, I was so done with bearing the weight of so many different kinds of responsibilities with the house, with my mom. And I had a really different attitude about clearing out the house at the point where we did decide to sell the house. I think that's a really good point. And it made me think about um, when we were actually at hospice and caring, you know, my dad was in his final days. And just the way that we all kind of addressed that and dealt with the fact that my dad was in hospice and probably was only going to live a few more days. I was you know, as sad as I was during the moment, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to spend every moment with him where my siblings were like, I can't even deal with this right now. Isn't that interesting? It's just kind of the way we grieve is so different. And there's so many instances where, yeah, you're, I know, and I knew this going into it as I was like way ahead of my siblings. You know, I recognized it a lot sooner. I saw a lot of issues earlier. Mm -hmm. At one point, they actually had to talk me back into helping mom and dad because, I was so tired of being shut out, of trying to help and having them be like, why do you keep showing up and trying to help us with this? Your parents. Um, the, yes, my yeah. parents did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they would call me and go, come over and help me pay the bills. Oh. And I would show up and they would forget that they called me to come oh, over gosh. and help pay the bills. They're like, why are you here? <laughs> so I had just like shut down at one point and my siblings were like, no, you need to keep going. Keep we, we know something's wrong now. We didn't recognize it before. Mm-hmm. You need to keep trying. And it was really, really hard. How was your health during this time? That's hard on you. I didn't get sick. Um, I poured my life, I guess, my free time into tennis. Mm-hmm. So I've actually become a pretty good tennis player <laughs> because it was the one time I could escape everything. You walk on the court, you don't think about anything else. And that is what saved me as I, I could go in and turn everything off and focus on one thing that had nothing to do with anything personal. Mm-hmm. It was just a, you know, athletic competition that I would play. So my health was good, um, it, but I found it almost overwhelming to manage work, raise kids, parents, things. It really impacted me, you know, work-wise, and I, I ended up leaving a career because I couldn't manage a full-time job mm-hmm. and do all these other things and stay sane. Mm-hmm. So I did recognize that, and that was the, the facts are very real. They report them all the time. You know, it's mm-hmm. several hundred thousand dollars that we give up as caregivers mm-hmm. because we kind of need to jump off the career track for a while. Mm-hmm. $43 million unpaid caregivers to the tune of $450 billion annually. That's the latest I've heard from the AARP. <laughs> Believe me, those statistics are mind-boggling to me. At least, though, you had a spouse who had an income, right, of 
yes. of some mm-hmm. kind. And so that's that was helpful. But, you know, you, you shouldn't have to give up your career. So how old are your kids? Um, I have a 18-year-old who uh-huh. is now in his freshman year of college, and uh-huh. I have a 12-year-old who's uh-huh. in seventh grade. And did you feel like they were given short shrift when you were going through this? Because that's tough on them, too. You know, it is, and I... In some ways, it made us a lot closer because I think they saw some of the things I was going through. They saw the weird behavior of my parents, and it allowed us to have a lot of conversations that I hope will help me and them manage this differently, you know, when I'm 20 and 30 years older. Sure. So in some ways, it's made us closer and we have more respect for each other because we see I couldn't hide what I was going through. There was really no way to not tell my kids. Mm -hmm. So... I, I, but I guess that's me. I'm a glass half full. I'm going to turn lemons into lemonade. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, in some ways it, it's given me more time with them because now I created a career out of helping other families get their information organized. And so now I can go to my daughter's soccer game where if I was still in my corporate job, I couldn't be leaving to go see her play soccer this afternoon. And what a great lesson for them about growing older and facing the realities of elderly parents. Yeah, and I think so many people hit it. I mean, I almost think that was our, my grandparents were very private about it. My parents tried Mm -hmm. to be very private about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of their issues, it wasn't private because everyone knew that there was something wrong with them cognitively. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, I work, I'm an advocate in our, in our community and I work at the community center and teach classes on these things about having the discussions, talk about what you want to do with your retirement time you're not just going to go play golf. You're going to have hours upon hours during the day. And how, how are you going to stay engaged? How are you going to be connected to your community? How do you live a life with meaning and purpose past the work years? And how do you volunteer that time back? So it's really changed my perspective on so many things. And my kids see it too. And I think they think differently about, you know, as my son's going off to college and starting to think about careers, it changes in a little bit how he's figuring out what he wants to do with his life. Oh, that's interesting. That's really great. Um, So your dad died a couple years ago. Your mom was still in the family home at that point? No, she, they were in a retirement community, a continuing care retirement community, oh, they so were. they were in independent living. Okay. They were, had been moved to assisted living, but, but when, it just wasn't right for my mom with dementia to be in assisted living. She needed more services. Right. right. So before they went into the CCRC, they lived in uh, their house. So you had to pack up a house too, right? Well, my parents made it a little bit more complicated than that. Okay. <laughs> they bought into the retirement community in 1998. So they'd been maintaining this retirement community apartment as their vacation home. So they did have a townhouse in Arlington, and they had a an apartment that was, you know, 20 miles away in the retirement community that they would visit on the weekends. How interesting. <laughs> they had a little bit of yeah. both worlds. Okay. They did, and it was funny because even, you know, at first it was like, we don't, we're not moving in, all the people there are old, so we're not ready to move in, and then even though when they were in their late 70s, and they were representative of the community, they just didn't, they weren't ready to ever really move in full-time into the retirement community. Wow, so so they just were putting their big toe in the water with the retirement community, and they maintained and lived sounds like most of the time in the townhouse. They did. Okay, so you had to close up a townhouse too. Yes, so we had to close up a townhouse 
downsize when they, then when they were in the we finally got them to move full time into the independent living retirement community because actually the retirement community was going to terminate their contract because they recognized that they were a danger to themselves and others and we had adult protective services coming in I mean there was a lot of other things wow. kind of going on at the same time but we did had to we sold the things in their townhouse divvied them up, shipped them off to kids in different locations, um, and then we had to downsize them into assisted living, and then we had to downsize my mom again when she moved into the memory community. So independent living to assisted living was in the same retirement community, Mm -hmm. and then a year ago, we moved my mom into a totally new community. We moved her out of the continuing care community because their memory unit was really for people that were very progressed. And so we moved her into a community that had more active people with dementia. Mm-hmm. And so that's where she is today. Okay. And how did she handle that? It went really well. We learned some things. So I, early on, I said I would always tell my parents once what was happening. We'd have a conversation about it, and then I would never bring it up again. But mm-hmm. I wanted to treat them as I wanted to be treated. Mm-hmm. So we told my mom about it, that she'd be moving. And I actually had someone help me move her stuff. I took her out to lunch, mm. and we had them move stuff. So by the time I took her after lunch to the new community, it looked like her old apartment. Um, and every great. time we went through this, I guess, transitioning, she was happier in smaller places, which I never would have guessed. Oh, isn't that amazing? My mom, too. <gasps> yeah, and we did. And, and that was my mom was like, I don't want to move. You know, I want to stay here. My parents were military, so they knew a lot of people in the community that had been lifelong friends. Sure. But it, so that was it was harder for me because I at least knew a lot of people around her had their eyes on her. Um, and so when we moved her, it was more mentally hard on me. But we all knew that we were moving her into a better place for her in general. And she's very happy where she is. That's really great. And how often do you see her now? Um, I see her probably three times a week. Uh-huh. That must be a relief for you of a kind to know that she's being well cared for and you can have, you know, some of the responsibility has been lifted off you, a lot of it, actually. Yes, I don't, I don't worry. I mean, it's, and it's funny because I, I blog about this a lot, actually. I, I blog dealing with dementia. Mm-hmm. I write about when I took a vacation to, I went to Belize with my daughter on a church mission. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have taken, I couldn't take vacations without being totally stressed out or asking a sibling to come to town before mm-hmm. because we just needed to have someone who was around mom and could help her. And now that she's in this new community, I, I can go away and I can leave for a week and not worry about her safety. And you can have a life. Yep. <laughs> now tell me about the Memory Bank Register and the Memory Bank Monograph because this is part of a whole system. Break it down for our listeners. Yep. So the memory bank register is everything that you manage in your head, on your phones, in your safe. It's your personal information. It's your account numbers. It's your usernames and passcodes. So it's all the details we use to manage our personal, financial, medical lives, and our households. Uh So it's really the practical side of living. The monograph was actually what I developed first. And it was, it's really a take on a scrapbook, kind of collides with memoirs. So the owners of it are prompted through the process of, you know, when, who was your first boyfriend? What was your first kiss? What was your first car? Um, and it goes from childhood to adulthood, you know, through, you know, decades of your life so that people can actually chronicle their lives. 
Mm-hmm. And I did it primarily because my mom had a scrapbook mm-hmm. with pictures in it. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that she couldn't tell me who was in the pictures anymore. Mm-hmm. And I realized even in my own scrapbooks, we put pictures in them. We might put people's names on the back of them, mm-hmm. but we have no details around the pictures. Mm-hmm. So I worked with personal historians to create a book that really gave people the ability to tell the stories that were happening and occurred in their lives mm-hmm. and put them on paper and make them permanent so that you can always go back and revisit them. It looks like a scrapbook when it comes, so okay. it has a, a scrapbook format, mm-hmm. um, but it has printed pages in it that the user completes along with picture um, pages that hold pictures. I got it. Okay. And the register is on a thumb drive or how is that stored? So the register is a binder system, so okay. people can add pages. Um, it also has an electronic PDF. Okay. So people can store the information digitally as well. Okay, that's great. And you've had great success with this system. Yes. It's yes. wonderful. I mean, it's it's been rewarding to be able to help so many families. Yeah. And what surprised me, I mean, I launched the business thinking this was for caregivers, but the majority of my clients are couples. Uh-huh. Um, most couples today, in some ways, divide and conquer. One person pays the bills, the other one might you know, manage the household mm-hmm. or do the chores. And so I was not surprised when I read in Consumer Reports that 7 out of 10 couples can't even recite or locate the major financial accounts mm-hmm. that they share because we just don't have that conversation anymore. So mm-hmm. um, giving just regular families a way to record all their information is important. So tell us where we can find this wonderful book. So all of our products you can find on memorybank.com, and that's memorybankbanc.com. And they're also available in some bookstores. Um, We also are available on amazon.com. So there's many online retailers that also carry the Memory Bank Register and the Memory Bank Workbook. Great. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we close? Um, I think that what I've learned in this journey is it isn't so important to do all this for others. Um, it's more important to do it for yourself because you won't have to set as many passwords. <laughs> We'd be resetting your password. So documenting your information is helpful to the individual that documents it, not just those around them that might need it someday in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, Kay Bransford, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I learned a lot, and i got to get myself one of those workbooks. <laughs> I'll be happy to send you one. Okay. Thanks, Kay. Take care. Oh, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear what you thought of today's program. You can email me at jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast and download any episodes for free at iTunes. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well. Age wise. <laughs>